Good evening. Good evening. Welcome to Liberty Baptist Church. My name is Jared. I'm one of the pastors here. We're glad that you're here for our Good Friday service. We have the story of the cross to share with you. If you're tired, if you're angry, if you're sad, if you're broken, if it's been a rough week, if you're a little confused or feel a little lost, you're in the right place. We have good news for you. So here in the shadow of the cross, you will find the power and the comfort that you need to make much of Jesus Christ in your life. We have a call to worship from Isaiah chapter 53. Who has believed what we have heard? And to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? He grew up before him like a young plant and like a root out of dry ground. He didn't have an impressive form or majesty that we should look at him. No appearance that we should desire him. He was despised and rejected by men. A man of suffering who knew what sickness was. He was like someone people turned away from. He was despised and we didn't value him. Yet he himself bore our sicknesses and he carried our pains. But we in turn regarded him stricken, struck down by God and afflicted. But he was pierced because of our rebellion, crushed because of our iniquities. Punishment for our peace was on him and we are healed by his wounds. We all went astray like sheep. We all have turned to our own way. And the Lord has punished him for the iniquity of us all. Matthew 26, verses 36 through 39. Then Jesus came with them to a place called Gethsemane. And he told his disciples, sit here while I go over there and pray. Taking along Peter and the two sons of Zebedee, he began to be sorrowful and troubled. He said to them, I am deeply grieved to the point of death. Remain here and stay awake with me. Going a little farther, he fell face down and prayed, My father, if it is possible, let this cup pass from me. Yet, not as I will, but as you will. In the first garden, Adam fell prey to the snake and his lies. He disobeyed the Father's will, and he led humanity in falling short of God's glory. The wrath and curse of God from then on needed to be paid, and it couldn't be paid by mankind. But God promised a snake crusher to Adam that day. And in God's perfect timing, that snake crusher would be Jesus Christ, who faced the will of God in another garden. But this time, the will of the Father would be obeyed by the second Adam, even as he knew it would cost him everything. And it did cost him everything. Tonight begins with the Garden of Gethsemane because this moment is the tipping point which begins the unstoppable momentum of the story of the cross. John Piper says, 
Here Jesus prays the greatest prayer in the world. What hung in the balance was the glory of God's grace and the salvation of the world. The success of Jesus' mission to earth depended on Jesus' prayer and the answer given. In the Garden of Gethsemane, what lays before Jesus in the hours ahead was the reality of the cross. The point of no return had almost come. Judas and the mob were coming. The window of escape was closing. So what we witness here is Jesus both as truly man and truly God facing the reality of the cross that lie ahead of him. And as he prays to his father and he talks to his disciples, there are three ways in which he faces the cross in the garden. He faces the cross with sorrow, with obedience, and with love. First, Jesus faced the cross with sorrow. In verse 37, Matthew says, Jesus began to be sorrowful and troubled. And then Jesus says to Peter, James, and John, he says, I am deeply grieved to the point of death. Here on display is the humanity of Christ. Because here was a man whose soul was broken, dejected, and in turmoil, as Psalm 42 would say. He felt the full crushing abominable weight of what lay before him and it was agonizing but here's the twist what grieved Jesus to the point of death in the garden was not the physical sufferings Jesus would endure not merely that the mocking the scourging the cross itself the suffocation the physical death what grieved Jesus to the point of death was the fact that he would bear our sin. To know one is hours away from death is one thing which a million men experience. To know one is hours away from bearing the sin of the world is the experience only one man has ever faced. We sing, it was my sin that held him there until it was accomplished. It was our sin that led Jesus to the cross and held him to the cross. And it was the fact that our sin was coming for him that caused him to grieve more deeply than we will ever know. And yet, as Jesus was deeply grieved to the point of death, he was also obedient to his father all the way to the cross. So second, Jesus faced the cross with obedience. Verse 39 shows Jesus' obedience as he pleads to the Father. He says, my Father, if it is possible, let this cup pass from me. Yet not as I will, but as you will. Jesus was facing temptation in the garden in ways that we could not even begin to comprehend. With the cross before him in just a matter of hours, we can know that the crying out of Jesus to his father to let that cup pass, that was a real request as it could be. And yet, as Hebrews 4.15 says, he was tempted in every way as we are, yet without sin. This is the incredible obedience of Christ, an unsinkable faithfulness to his father's will, a truly sinless man. 
Jesus prayed, your will be done, your will be done, your will be done, three times in Matthew. It's like saying, holy, holy, holy. That, that phrase spoken three times, it shows a perfect, full, and worshipful surrender to the will of his Father. Jesus was sent to earth with a mission to save his people from their sins, as the angel told Joseph. And here we see nothing less than perfect commitment that Jesus gives to his mission and to his father all the way to the cross. Philippians 2.8, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even to death on a cross. It is the obedience of Christ that qualifies him to be the substitute for our sin and the reason Jesus rises from the dead. Because he is truly the son of God, truly righteous from all eternity to all eternity. Third, Jesus faced the cross with love. What is that cup that Jesus asks the father to remove from him? The cup is the full measure of God's wrath. So great and so costly that we could never, literally never imagine the weight of it. The knowledge of this cup and what it will take to drink it is what causes Jesus the sorrow that he shows in the garden. And it is the reality of the cross. It is the work of bearing every single one of our sins. It is the reality that the Father will turn his face away and leave his Son because the Father cannot be in the presence of sin. It begs the question, what could possibly drive Jesus to take up the worst punishment imaginable for the sake of his people? The answer is the great love that he has for us. You know the depth of one's love when they give their life for your life. How much more for the one who gave their life for your eternal life? Spurgeon says this, the whole of the punishment of his people was distilled into one cup. No mere mortal lip might give it so much as a solitary sip. When he puts it to his own lips, it was so bitter he well nigh spurned it. In other words, he almost rejected it when he said, let this cup pass from me. But his love for his people was so strong and his commitment to the Father and his will was so steadfast that he took the cup in both his hands and at one tremendous draught of love, he drank damnation dry. Praise God that we know the end of this story. Jesus did indeed drink that cup. That cup is empty, his work is finished, and because of our Savior's love and obedience, those of us who have trusted in Christ are saved because of his work on the cross. And for those of us in Christ, be renewed in your worship of Jesus, who obeyed when we could not and who bore our sin when we could not. If you don't know Jesus and you're in this room tonight, trust in his love and his obedience tonight and know that his finished work is for you and you can be saved. And for all of us, I hope Jesus' posture in the garden 
sets the tone for the rest of the path to the cross in this way, that you see the cost of your sin, you see the glory and the grace of Jesus' sacrifice and the joy of our salvation in him. Amen. Hundreds of years before Jesus prayed in the garden to his father, prayed about what was to come, the suffering he was to endure. It was prophesied by Isaiah that the Messiah would not come as a conquering king. He would not be embraced by his people, but rather he would take the form of a suffering servant, one who would ultimately be betrayed and abandoned. We read this passage opening tonight's service in Isaiah 53. He didn't have an impressive form or majesty that we should look upon him or that we should desire him. He was rejected by men. He was like someone people turned away from. He was despised. The story of the cross cannot be told without discussing the betrayal of Jesus. As the Messiah, Jesus was fully aware what, he would, what would follow only days after his triumphal entry into Jerusalem. In fact, on several occasions, he actually tells his disciples that this is coming. But before Jesus was denied pardon or ridiculed by crucified criminals or nailed to his own cross, he was first betrayed by the very ones who had sworn their allegiance, fidelity, and trust in him. While reclining at the table with the twelve during Passover, Jesus said, One of you will betray me. And the scriptures tell us that each one heard, uh, hearing him that night were distressed. Who would betray the king, much less any of us? Nonetheless, there was indeed a faithless follower who dwelt among the disciples that night. Luke 22 tells us that Satan entered Judas and that Judas, for the love of money, had purposed in his heart to betray Jesus. Now, while it's easy to excuse Judas's treachery on Satan, it's important to note that it wasn't the devil that made Judas betray our Lord. Rather, the one who had delivered Christ over to sinful men had already delivered himself over to the enemy of God. To add insult to injury, Judas betrayed our Lord with a kiss, a sign that typically expresses honor and deep respect. However, in the twisted and dark heart of the betrayer, this greeting revealed disdain, disloyalty, and even contempt that Judas had for our Lord. But the story of the betrayal doesn't end with Judas. There was another traitor present that night. While he had not planned to betray Jesus, Simon Peter's once bold and confident confession of Christ quickly melted away at the first sign of trouble. This fearful follower would deny his Lord not once, but three times. In very similar ways, Judas and Peter were enticed by their own flesh to betray Jesus. However, a sharp distinction appears in how they responded after their betrayal. These responses reveal two very different paths. Judas and Peter both shed tears over what they had done. The Bible tells us that Judas was full of remorse and had actually admitted that he was guilty and had sinned. But his sorrow was shown to be shallow and ineffectual. We know this because Judas's story ends with his own self-destruction. 
His end was marked by despair and curses. 2 Corinthians 7.10 tells us that godly grief produces a repentance that leads to salvation without regret, but worldly grief produces death. Like Judas, Peter also wept bitter tears over what he had done. But unlike Judas, Peter's sorrow was later redeemed. There are two instances that demonstrate that Peter's betrayal doesn't end with regret but salvation. First, when Peter was told that the tomb was empty, he was one of the first to take off running to investigate. There was a spark of faith and expectation in that Easter morning foot race. Later in John 21, uh, the apostle tells us that the risen Lord encountered Peter and a few of the disciples while they were fishing. While Peter was still in the boat, he heard that it was Jesus, and he tied his outer clothing around him and plunged into the sea with the eager anticipation of once again being near his Lord. It was there at an early morning campfire breakfast that Jesus restored Peter. These stories about betrayal, despair, loss, and redemption are designed to highlight the story of the cross, but also to teach us about the gospel message which it represents. You see, the Bible tells us that all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Peter and Judas are not the only traitors in the story of the cross. You and I have committed the ultimate betrayal of Christ with our own sin. We can surely identify with the Apostle Paul when he cried out, What a wretched man am I? Who will save me from this body of death? The question is not whether uh, we've betrayed Christ, but what does the end of our story look like? Will it look like Judas's betrayal that ended in destruction? Or like Peter's? who's ended with repentance, faith, and restoration? Well, that depends. Do you maintain a veneer of righteousness on the outside, but inwardly are faithless and dead spiritually? If so, your betrayal may be like the deceptive kiss of Judas. Beware, there will be many who the Lord will pass over in the final day because they tried to serve two masters. The good news of the gospel is that Christ died for the ungodly. If you call out to him, you will be saved. And your story of betrayal can have a very different ending. On the other hand, do you stumble and fall but are quick to pursue the Lord? Have you denied our Lord with your actions but have wept tears of true repentance? Take heart, my brothers and sisters. The kingdom of heaven is not for those who save themselves, but for those who know they need saving. May the story of the betrayal of Jesus prompt us to take inventory of our souls as we remember and celebrate what Christ did to save ours. Church, we now come to the scene of Barabbas and Jesus in Matthew 27, 15 through 26. Hear these words. At the festival, the governor's custom was to release to the crowd a prisoner they wanted. At that time, they had a notorious prisoner called Barabbas. So when they gathered together, Pilate said to them, Who is it you want me to release for you, Barabbas or Jesus who is called Christ? For he knew it was because of envy that they had handed him over. 
while he was sitting on the judge's bench, his wife sent word to him, Have nothing to do with that righteous man, for today I've suffered terribly in a dream because of him. The chief priests and the elders, however, persuaded the crowds to ask for Barabbas and to execute Jesus. Verse 21, the governor asked them, Which of the two do you want me to release for you? Barabbas, they answered. Pilate asked them, What should I do then with Jesus, who is called Christ? They all answered, Crucify him. Then he said, Why? What has he done wrong? But they kept shouting all the more, Crucify him. When Pilate saw that he was getting nowhere, but that a riot was starting instead, he took some water, washed his hands in front of the crowd, and said, I am innocent of this man's blood. See to it yourselves. All the people answered, His blood be on us and on our children. Then he released Barabbas to them, and after having Jesus flogged, handed him over to be crucified. What you find in the Gospels is that each Gospel writer includes this account of Barabbas at Jesus' trial before Pontius Pilate. And that may not come across as noteworthy to you, except upon a closer evaluation you see, for instance, that the twelve disciples are not all cited by name in the Gospels. Nor is Jesus' earthly father, Joseph, mentioned in each Gospel. That the account of Barabbas and Jesus is found in each of the four Gospels is spiritually significant. This is a gospel parable visualized before us in each of the gospel accounts. This scene is a powerful gospel illustration of how Jesus dies in the place of sinners as their substitute. What you observe in this passage is that Pilate does not believe Jesus is guilty. And neither does Pilate's wife. Pilate asks in verse 23, what evil has he done? And then Pilate's wife, sin's word, have nothing to do with this righteous man. But the people, especially the religious leaders, want Jesus crucified. At that time, verse 15 tells us, the governor was accustomed to releasing for the crowd any one prisoner whom they wanted. Pilate, at this point, believed Barabbas' crimes were so evil and his reputation so tainted that the people would choose Jesus for release. I think it's also likely that Pilate was aware that just days prior on Palm Sunday, the crowd had welcomed Jesus into Jerusalem with praise. But on this day, in Matthew 27, the crowd sinfully and wickedly and blindly chose Barabbas over Jesus. The crowd demands Jesus be crucified. What I want to set before you here briefly is what I believe is an intended set of contrasts and comparisons meant to communicate on the one hand the evil of the decision of the crowd to pardon Barabbas and kill Jesus, but more importantly on the other hand for us to see that this narrative visualizes the pardon we receive as sinners through Jesus Christ. Note, note with me these Contrasts and comparisons. First, Barabbas' name means son of the Father. Jesus, we know, is the eternal son of the Father Almighty. Barabbas was formerly unpopular. Jesus was formerly popular. Barabbas was a notable prisoner. Jesus was the promised Messiah. 
Barabbas was a threat to peace. Jesus is the Prince of Peace who brings a gospel of peace. Barabbas sought to overthrow the government by insurrection. Isaiah 9 tells us that upon Jesus the government is on his shoulders. Barabbas was plainly guilty of robbery, murder, insurrection. Jesus was perfectly holy, without blemish. Barabbas was a murderer whose life was spared. Jesus is the giver of life who was murdered for another. The cross upon which Jesus died was prepared not for him, but for Barabbas. Jesus died on Barabbas' cross. Barabbas is pardoned because of religious envy. Believers in Jesus Christ are pardoned because of divine love. And here tonight, friends, if we believe Barabbas had something to celebrate, we as believers in the Lord Jesus Christ have even more to celebrate. Our physical lives have not just been spared, but our eternal spiritual lives through Jesus dying on the cross and taking our place, bearing the wrath of God for our sins. The story of Jesus in Barabbas clearly portrays God's grace in the gospel. What you see in this scene is that the guilty man goes free while the innocent man, Jesus Christ, dies in his place. And we, like Barabbas have been set free not owing to any personal merit, but only because Jesus takes our place at the cross. It's not hard to see that Barabbas contributed nothing to his pardon. He was unworthy, undeserving of being released that day. And we too are unworthy of our spiritual pardoning and receiving eternal life. Barabbas, like us, was pardoned because he had a substitute. Jesus Christ. And this is what we come today to celebrate and worship God together about. Is that this good news remains good even tonight. That although Jesus was completely righteous. He took the curse of sin upon himself. By dying our death on the cross and rising from the dead on the third day. And although we are unrighteous. And deserving of God's judge wrath, God is gracious and merciful to any sinner who repents. Through faith, Christ's perfect life is credited. Christ's status of righteousness and holiness is received and sin is forgiven forever, past, present, and future. And so what we're coming together as a congregation tonight is to declare that this gospel is indeed good news. That cross is where our sin was paid for. And where our punishment was born. And this is why we sing the songs we do. As we sang earlier. In our place condemned Christ stood. Sealing our pardon with his blood. Hallelujah. What a savior. Guilty, vile and helpless we. Spotless lamb of God was he. Full atonement. Can it be. Hallelujah. What a savior. This historical narrative of Barabbas points to the spiritual truth that Jesus can save hopeless, helpless sinners who have been declared guilty, who are on their way to their grave, and Jesus steps in and takes their place. And friends, that is the only way that salvation occurs. That is the only access into heaven. That's the only way eternal life is granted, is Jesus Christ in your place. Matthew 27, 22, 
records this question by Pilate, which is arguably one of the most important questions ever asked. What should I do with Jesus? What should I do with Jesus who is called the Christ? And that is the question every single person here tonight needs to ask and answer. What should I do with Christ? God says to you tonight to embrace Him. To choose Him. To receive Him. To look to Him. Believe on Him. Trust in Him. Take Him as your substitutionary, sin-bearing Savior. Whether you are guilty of vile crimes like Barabbas. Whether you are guilty of religious hostility like the chief priests and scribes and elders. Whether you are guilty of indifference and inaction like Pilate. None of us are innocent of Jesus' blood. All of us have sinned, fall short of the glory of God. The wages of sin are death for us. And so there is only one hope in being spared from the eternal judgment due us. It's Christ in your place. No attempt to purge ourselves of sin will be successful. There's only one remedy. Christ in your place. Perfect, crucified, and risen for you. So tonight, friend, don't be like Pilate who ignored the warning of his wife. Who knew what was right and didn't act upon it. Don't be like the crowds who saw Jesus at times for what he was, but ended up rejecting him and choosing another. Instead, turn to Christ. Turn to Christ in faith. Turn to Christ for salvation. The scripture teaches us that for those who do choose Christ, they are regarded as innocent though guilty. They are forgiven even though they are not deserving of it. They receive eternal life even though they die. And if you take Christ as your saving substitute, God will clear your record. He will bear your sin. And He will die your death at the cross. Amen. Mark 15, 15 through 20 reads this. Wanting to satisfy the crowd, Pilate released Barabbas to them. And after having Jesus flogged, he handed him over to be crucified. The soldiers led him away into the palace, that is, the governor's residence, and called the whole company together. They dressed him in a purple robe, twisted together a crown of thorns, and put it on him. And they began to salute him, Hail, King of the Jews! They were spitting on him, on the head, and hitting on him with a stick. And spitting on him. Getting down on their knees, they were paying him homage. After they mocked him, they stripped him of the purple robe and put his clothes on him. I have two simple points for us to consider when we think about the scourging and the scorning of Jesus. First, Jesus was scourged for us. Though Mark only gives one brief comment about Jesus being flogged, we must pay closer attention to what Jesus went through when he was flogged, so we don't miss the weight of what our Lord went through prior to being crucified. Flogging, or also known as scourging, was often done in preparation for the terrible act of crucifixion. Flogging was an incredible act of torture that frequently even resulted in the death of the criminal itself. Though there is evidence that it could be carried out in different ways, one of the most common ways was as follows. 
The victim would be stripped of their clothing and tied to something with their hands above their head. Then the torturer would bring out a whip made of leather cords that had in the ends embedded pieces of bone, glass, or lead. The victim would then be lashed across the back and sides repeatedly. The Jews limited their scourges to 40 lashes, but the Romans had no such limit. It could be up to the tormentor or the overseer's pleasure, which is why the victim often died. With each lash, there would be significant lacerations of the skin and the muscle tissue, and after several lashes, even going down to the bone. Josephus, who was a first century Jewish historian, records that one man was whipped with scourges down to the bone. There would be severe blood loss and agony as a result of this horrendous process. And our Lord, Jesus the Messiah, endured this horrific process. But not only did he endure it, he endured it for you. Though the Jewish leaders and Pontius Pilate thought they were just carrying out another case of torture and execution, we know that even this brute cruelty was a part of the plan of God that was prophesied about long ago to redeem his people. Hear the words of Isaiah when he is describing the suffering servant who is to come. First, in Isaiah 50, verse 6, he says this, I gave my back to those who strike, and my cheeks to those who pull out the beard. I hid not my face from disgrace and spitting. And later, Isaiah says in chapter 53, verses 4 through 5, Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. Yet we esteem him stricken, smitten by God and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And with his wounds, we are healed. The word for wound there in the Hebrew text can also mean stripes or slashes. All of the suffering that Jesus went through, all of the pain and the agony, every lash that went across his sinless back, It was all a part of the plan of God to redeem you. We should think about this the next time we're tempted to sin. When we as redeemed followers of Christ give in to sin, we are in essence minimizing the great cost that Jesus endured to redeem us from that very sin. Let us not minimize the intense suffering of our Lord. Every stripe laid across his back was a stripe endured so that he could guarantee that you and I could be reconciled to God. Jesus was scourged you. Next, Jesus was scorned for us. Jesus was scorned for us. In our text that we just read a few moments ago, we see Jesus being mocked and scorned by the Roman soldiers, for in their minds, Jesus was a false king. But this was not actually the first time we know that Jesus was mocked. The Jewish leaders mocked Jesus in the previous chapter of Mark's gospel in verses 60 through 65, but they were mocking him for being a false messiah. Verse 60 begins like this. Then the high priest stood up before them and questioned Jesus. Don't you have an answer for what these men are testifying against you? But he kept silent and did not answer. Again, the high priest questioned him. Are you the Messiah, the son of the blessed one? I am, said Jesus. And you will see the son of man seated at the right hand of power, coming with the clouds of heaven. Then the high priest tore his robes and said, why do we still need witnesses? You have heard the blasphemy. What is your decision? They all condemned him as deserving death. Then some began to spit on him, to blindfold him, and to beat him, saying, Prophesy! The temple servants took him and slapped him. 
In this scene, the high priest asked Jesus plainly if he was the Messiah. And as he responds with, I am, and then he later responds by alluding to Daniel 7, to say that he is the Son of Man who will be seated at the right hand of power and that he is the one who will come on the clouds of heaven. This is a significant claim by Jesus. It was about his true identity. And if we had more time, we could look more carefully at Daniel 7 to flesh out of this a little bit more. But we know that this was a divine claim by Jesus because of even how the high priest responds. He accuses Jesus of blasphemy. And then together, the Jewish leaders decide to turn Jesus over to death. But notice what they do in order to mock him. Verse 65 says, Then some began to spit on him, they blindfolded him, and then they beat him. Why did they blindfold him and tell him to prophesy? Well, they did this because of an old interpretation of Isaiah chapter 11, verses 2 through 4, where it describes the coming reign of the future Davidic king. Verse 3 in Isaiah 11 says, His delight will be in the fear of the Lord. He will not judge by what he sees with his eyes. But what's interesting to note is that the word for delight in that verse could literally mean to smell. So this verse could be rendered, His smell is through the fear of the Lord. And in light of this understanding, the rabbis throughout the history of Judaism, after Isaiah had written this, had began to believe that this was a test case for the Messiah that he should be able to judge without sight, but by smell. So this became a test case. In fact, there was another false messiah about 100 years after Jesus. His name was Messiah bar And we read about him that bar reigned for about two and a half years. Then he said to the rabbis, I am the Messiah. You know what they said to him? Of the Messiah, it is written that he smells and he judges. When they saw that he was unable to judge by scent, they slew him. In light of this, we see why the Jewish leaders blindfolded Jesus and mocked him. They were mockingly testing his Messiahship. And we know that Jesus could have very easily told them their names. He could have told them far more than that. He could have told them the name of their second cousin twice removed. But he didn't. And he didn't do it because it was God's plan for him to suffer and to die as the Messiah so that he could save their people, his people from their sins. Jesus was mocked as a false Messiah. But next we see that Jesus was also mocked by the Roman soldiers as a false king. The soldiers led him away, dressed him in a purple robe, twisted together a crown of thorns, scornfully saluting him, hail king of the Jews. They were bowing before him and mocking him. Now each of these acts by the soldiers reveal that they were mocking Jesus as a false king. Purple was a sign of royalty. Kings wore crowns. Kings were saluted with honorific statements, and people bowed down in the presence of kings. Yet there is a part of this mockery that's frequently missed. We frequently think that the crown of thorns was just another act of torture by these obscene Roman soldiers. And while it is certainly that, it is also much more than that. In Roman belief, once an emperor died, they were deified and became one of the gods. So in Roman culture, this was often signified on their coins, on their money. Though there were, there were two different images for emperor coins, one for when they were alive and one for when they were dead. And the difference is in the crown. Notice, I think we have a slide on the, uh, the, the slide behind me. The one on the left is a laurel crown. The one on the right is a radiant crown. 
The one on the right symbolizes Emperor Tiberius after he had died and been glorified. This helps us see that the crown of thorns that these Roman soldiers placed on Jesus' head was not just for their torture. According to their belief, kings that died became gods. They knew they were about to kill Jesus, therefore they were mockingly suggesting that he was about to become a god. And this plays a part of the dramatic irony of the entire scene. It's ironic because these soldiers are testifying to the truth that they do not know and they do not understand. Jesus is the true Messiah. Jesus is the true King. Jesus is truly the God-man. He isn't about to become God by his death. He was God who left glory by humbling himself by taking on flesh. Jesus could have called legions of angels to end this scorn and this mockery. He could have silenced these soldiers in an instant. But he didn't. And he didn't because of you and me. He knew this was all a part of God's plan to save you and me from our sins. He knew that he must embrace this scorn and this mockery and go through the pain in order to save us. This is revealed in the final mockery of Mark's gospel as Jesus is hanging on the cross. The Jewish leaders beholding Jesus on the cross cry in derision, he saved others, but he cannot save himself. Oh, the irony. It is through his suffering and death, through his self-sacrifice, through him hanging there on the cross and giving his life that he is, in fact, saving others. He cannot save himself and save others, so he chose you and me instead of himself. Jesus endured the mocking. Jesus endured the scorn so that you and I might become children of God. See how much you are loved this evening and live in light of that great love. In closing, I want to ask you, do you live your Christian life? Do you follow Jesus in such a way that you actually make much of Jesus' suffering and scorn on your behalf? Or is your life more of a mockery of what Jesus actually did for you? He endured the scourging. He endured the scorn. He was put to death, enduring the wrath of God that you and I might be set free from our sins, not so that we could live in our sins. Let's pray that God would enable us, even this evening, this very moment, to live more worthy lives that reflect the truth that we've seen here this evening. Amen. Luke chapter 23, verses 39 through 43. This is a story of the two criminals. Then one of the criminals hanging there began to yell insults at him. Aren't you the Messiah? Save yourself and us. But the other answered, rebuking him, don't you even fear God since you are undergoing the same punishment? We are punished justly because we're getting back what we deserve for the things we did. But this man has done nothing wrong. Then he said, Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. And he said to him, truly, I tell you, today you will be with me in paradise. Were you there when they crucified my Lord? I think when we sing that song, we can't help but to imagine ourselves in the story. I don't know about you, but I have a tendency when watching my favorite movie to picture myself as one of the more noble and brave characters. 
Often after watching three hours of a Marvel movie, I'll look over at my wife and I'll think, I could do that. <laughs> and then I get off the couch and my back pops and I'm like, no. <laughs> I wonder when we put ourselves at the scene of the cross, if we have this same tendency. We would never see ourselves as Judas who sold out Jesus for a prophet. We would never see ourselves as Pilate who handed Jesus over out of fear. We would never see ourselves in the crowd yelling for the release of a murderer in exchange for Jesus. We would never see ourselves as the Roman soldiers taunting, beating, and torturing Jesus. But while none of us would naturally picture ourselves as one of these characters at the scene of the cross, the way the Bible describes us in our natural condition would put us there as one of these characters. Brothers and sisters, until we understand the depth of our own sinfulness that would have led us to join in both in cheering for and actively participating in the death of Jesus, the cross will never be amazing to us. My prayer has been that through the story of the two criminals, lost people in this room would be saved and weary saints would have the joy of their salvation restored. Well, in our brief time together this, today, we are going to look at Simply the first criminal, the second criminal, and the response of Jesus. The first criminal. Leading up to our passage, Luke records that the crowds were mocking Jesus and the Roman soldiers were dividing his clothes in order to make a profit. Think about this for a moment with me. They have the Lord of glory right in front of their faces. And instead of seeing him as the infinite treasure that he is, they see more value in his tunic. And if this was not enough to communicate the depravity of man, we see Jesus receive similar treatment from one of the criminals when being crucified next to him. Verse 39 says, then one of the criminals hanging there began to yell insults at him. Aren't you the Messiah? Save yourself and us. The only thing the first criminal can see Jesus that, that he's good for is to potentially get him out of his current circumstances. In fact, it makes him angry that this supposed Messiah either can't or won't exercise his power to save his own skin. In this moment, the criminal can only see his need to escape physical death because he is blinded by his sin to see his need to escape his spiritual death. This is our condition apart from Christ. We see no value in Jesus like the Roman soldiers, and we see no usefulness in Jesus like the first criminal. The willful, spiritual blindness and hard heart of the first criminal in our story describes fallen humanity universally. This is why we all, without exception, deserve the just wrath of God. However, praise God, this is not the only picture that Luke gives us in this story, does he? 
The first criminal reminds us that we are all rebels deserving God's judgment. And the second criminal reminds us of the grace of God towards rebels like us. The second criminal, Luke says in verses 40 through 42, he records for us, but the other answered, rebuking him, don't you even fear God? Since you are undergoing the same punishment, we are being punished justly because we're getting back what we deserve for the things we did. But this man has done nothing wrong. And then he said, Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. Unless we think that the second criminal was slightly smarter or a better person, the Gospel of Matthew records elsewhere that both at one point were mocking Jesus. And then in a moment, this criminal who likely spent most of his life with little regard for the Lord now refuses to join in in the sinfulness of others. Instead, he rebukes the first criminal in our story who continued mocking Jesus. He is now admitting that the punishment he is getting is deserved. He is now rightly identifying that Jesus is both innocent and a king whose kingdom is not of this world. He is now pleading to the man he once mocked for mercy as he humbly asked Jesus to remember him. The two different responses from the first and second criminal should lead us to ask the question, what happened to this man? The first criminal, along with the crowd, needed Jesus to meet their demands of a Messiah before believing. However, the second criminal, he makes no demands, just a humble request revealing his simple trust. So let me ask you, what happened to this man? John Calvin answers the question for us when he says, For it was not by the natural movement of the flesh that he laid aside his fierce cruelty and proud contempt of God so as to repent immediately. But he was subdued by the hand of God as the whole scripture shows that repentance is his work. How powerful must the grace of God be that in a moment it can overcome a lifetime of spiritual blindness. How powerful must the grace of God be that in a moment it can overcome a heart hardened from a lifetime of pursuing sin. But do you want to know what is even more astonishing than a criminal's response to Jesus? What is even more astonishing is the response of Jesus to a helpless criminal. The response of Jesus. Luke records his response in verse 43. And he said to him, truly, I tell you, today you will be with me in paradise. This criminal was bound to a cross with no way of getting to work. This criminal had no religious degrees and no systematic theology books to study. But this criminal saw his need for a savior and found in Christ a savior full of mercy to trust. The response of Jesus from the cross to a criminal reminds us that salvation is by grace alone through faith alone. The response of Jesus from the cross to a criminal reminds us that at this very moment with breath still in our lungs, there is hope. 
the response of Jesus from the cross to a criminal reminds us that he delights in saving sinners, even the worst. Jesus responds to the pride of the first criminal with silence, leaving him condemned. He refused to accept the demand to get down from the cross and to save himself because that is not what he came to do. Jesus responds to the humble cry of the second criminal because laying down his life to save sinners is what he came to do. And rather than saving himself, instead, like Isaiah 53.12 predicted long ago, he willingly submitted to death and was counted among the rebels. Brothers and sisters, he did this so that you and I could have forgiveness and like the second criminal, experience eternal rest to come in his glorious presence. I used to have a roommate in college that used to joke and say that he would just wait until the end of his life to get right with the Lord. Unbelieving friends, the story of the two criminals reminds us of the foolishness of delaying repentance. Have you ever wondered why the Lord only saved one criminal and not both? I think J.C. Ryle comments helpfully when he says, One thief was saved that no sinner might despair, but only one that no sinner might presume. At any moment our death could come and we will have to stand before God for our crimes against him. His kindness to a criminal is not meant for us to delay in coming to him, but to come now in repentance and faith. His kindness to a criminal is meant to show us that no matter what you have done or no matter how long that you have been running, that he can forgive you. He can welcome you home and he can accept you into his favorable presence, not because of you, but because of Christ and his work. Psalm 86.5 says this, For you, Lord, are kind and ready to forgive, abounding in faithful love to all who call on you. The response of Jesus to a criminal shows criminals like us that our sin is no match for the grace of God. Brothers and sisters, let's marvel together at Jesus, the friend of sinners. come now to the final chapter in our story for tonight. I'll be preaching from Matthew 27 verses 50 through 54. We'll see in this passage what happens when the Lord of heaven and earth breathes his last breath. We'll see what effect that has on the temple, what effect it has on the earth, what effect it has on the dead. But what I hope we see most of all is the effect that it could have on you. Read with me Matthew 27, verses 50 through 54. But Jesus cried out again with a loud voice and gave up his spirit. Suddenly, the curtain of the sanctuary was torn in two from top to bottom. The earth quaked and the rocks were split. The tombs were also opened And many bodies of the saints who had fallen asleep were raised. 
and they came out of the tombs after his resurrection, entered the holy city, and appeared to many. When the centurion and those who were with him, who were keeping watch over Jesus, saw the earthquake and the things that had happened, they were terrified and said, Truly this man was the Son of God. This is the moment our evening together has been building towards. It's the moment Jesus has been headed for since he came to earth. His entire public ministry, his face set towards Jerusalem. This crucifixion is the climax of human history. And we see here, it's an event that does not disappoint. Darkness had been covering the land for hours as the maker's breaths drew shorter and shorter. Finally, he breathes his last with a loud cry. It's a cry so powerful it tears the curtain of the temple from top to bottom, turning the whole Jewish belief system on its head. It's a cry so deep it opens the earth and splits the rocks, shaking the foundations of the physical world. It's a cry so forceful it opens even the tombs, providing the first glimpse that death itself would soon work backwards. It's a cry so awful that those who had killed Jesus stopped and marveled at his majesty. This is a cry not of defeat, but of victory. This text demonstrates that Jesus is Lord even in death. Even when he loses, he wins. In fact, it's actually his death that won him his great victory. Jesus came to die and in dying displayed his lordship by purchasing his beloved with his own blood. We can see the temple curtain proclaiming his lordship, flying apart because the forerunner, Jesus Christ, has entered the holy place that he might be our anchor there. The earth and the rocks proclaim his lordship by bending and breaking beneath his mighty rule. The tombs open wide their doors because they recognize their king. Death is no longer the master of that domain. But it's this final reaction, this last effect that shows Jesus' purpose. Jesus did not come to earth for the mere tearing of temple curtains, the mere breaking of rocks, or even only the opening of tombs. Instead, these all served a greater purpose. Jesus came. Jesus went to the cross that Jesus might be confessed as Lord. Jesus, though he was in the form of God throughout eternity, did not count that as something to be held on to. But instead, he emptied himself. He took on human form. He became a servant. And being found in our form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even a humiliating death on a cross. And because of that obedience, because of what he suffered, God has exalted him and given him the name above all names, so that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus is Lord. Jesus came, Jesus was crucified, that Jesus might be confessed as Lord. This centurion who recognized Jesus was one of the men responsible for carrying out his death. Matthew writes 
that he and others were keeping watch over Jesus, but they weren't doing this out of care for him. They were there as witnesses to verify his last moments. Though this centurion had likely seen dozens, if not hundreds, of deaths, something about this one shook him. They saw him die. They saw all these miracles happening around them, and what was their response? Terror. C.S. Lewis has famously said that those who heard Jesus claim that he was a son of God could have come to only three conclusions. First, that he was a lunatic. Second, that he's a liar. And third, that he really was Lord. But for this centurion and those with him, they could rule out those first two options. This centurion recognized this is the Son of God. And all of us must have this kind of reaction if we hope to be saved. Have you lost sight of the terror and the majesty of the cross? Have you grown comfortable with the idea that the Lord of all creation, covered in his own blood, was nailed to a couple pieces of wood and suffocated to death? Have you forgotten the great pains which Jesus suffered to save you? Jesus died on the cross that he might save those whom he loves. But the Bible makes clear that only those who look to Jesus and proclaim like this centurion, truly this was the Son of God, will be saved. It really is that easy, but you must behold Jesus in all his glory and all his humiliation upon the cross, that rugged cross. You must see he came, he was crucified, that he might be confessed. Jesus died for you, if you would have him. Let's pray. Thank you, Lord, that you have came, and that you were crucified on our behalf, that we might confess you as Lord and have a sure hope of salvation in the last day. May your name be glorified among us, Lord. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.